So, message today is dying to your dark side. We're going to be in Romans chapter 7, continuing our series on the book of Romans. How many people in high school, or maybe since then, had read that book by Robert Louis Stevenson called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Anybody remember way back when um, reading that book? No one? Okay, you did? Oh, I didn't see you back there. A couple of people have probably read it. If not, I'm sure you've probably seen one of the many, many movies that have been made about it. Uh, a brief synopsis of what the book's about. There's a man that's named Dr. Jekyll. Dr. Jekyll is seemingly a fine, upstanding member of society. Everybody loves him. He's a great asset to his community. But deep inside Dr. Jekyll, there is a dark side. There's a dark side that really wants to do a lot of things that would not be culturally acceptable at the very least, and even illegal and a very immoral and evil at the, at, at the extreme of what he wants to do. And he struggles with this for years of, of this dual nature that he has within him, and he comes up with a solution. He makes a, a potion in his chemistry lab that will transform him into a different person that can then go out and live out all these desires that's not him, but this other person living it out. And this person is named Mr. Hyde. And the term Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde has become a colloquialism of all of us, of, of a person who seems to be one way over here, but secretly he's that way and a very evil person over there. And what the book is, is a study um, a fictional study in the dual nature that exists within all human beings. And with the exception of Jesus, really every single person who has ever lived has a dark side to them. Every one of us has a side that we don't want other people to see. And it's kind of like, it's almost like you have this crazed animal sometimes that lives inside of you in the darkest parts of your soul. And for some people, it seems like this, this dark side is always scratching at the door and it's, it's always trying to search for a way to get out and cause havoc in your life and the, the people that you love's lives. But for others, particularly if you've walked with Christ for a while, you think you have that thing chained up. You have it triple chained. You have it locked behind 14 doors with an armed guard standing at the door. But for some reason, when you get tired, when you get stressed, when you get worried, whatever it is that you can hear that, that dark side kind of barking and growling and yelping, trying to get out. And every one of us has this to some extent or another. And when we see this, when we read in the Bible, we, time and time again, men and women in the Bible have dealt with their dark side. David is a key example of a man who was incredibly blessed by God. He was so blessed by God that the Bible gives him the singular distinction of being called a man who was after God's own heart. Yet when you read about David's life, you see some grievous sin that he did. David committed adultery. David committed murder. David had a hot temper. People crossed him. He wanted to go cut their heads off with a sword. I mean, he, he was a man of many, many passions. And he, these passions 
ruled him to the point that sometimes it caused a lot of havoc in his own life, in his family's life, and in his kingdom's life. And I see, as I read and study the Bible, how men and women that were used by God still have very glaring character faults. And I would read about them, particularly when I was a newer Christian, but I never really applied that back to me. I would read about them, and, and kind of in the infancy of, of walking with Christ, you kind of think, well, these people just were really dumb, weren't they? And you never really kind of turned that back inward to look at yourself and say, okay, God, David may have had those glaring faults. What faults may be lurking in my heart that you can point out and that we can deal with? And about 10 years ago, I had two different things happen in my life that started helping me to confront some of the things that were inside of me that, that weren't pleasing about God. And one of these came in kind of a really strange, unique way, the way that God started to work this out in my life. My daughter started babysitting for a family. Both of them ended up babysitting for them. And this family was very um, involved, even had the studio on their property for the Christian rock band Skillet. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of them, but they came out with a, um, um, a new single that launched them actually into the mainstream, uh, a single that was called Monster. And I know that's kind of a, everybody's like, oh gosh, it doesn't sound like a very Christian song. But when you hear the lyrics, it's talking exactly about what we're talking about here. And the lyrics start out like this. The secret side of me, I never let you see. I keep it caged, but I can't control it. So stay away from me, the beast is ugly. I feel the rage and I just can't hold it. It's scratching on the walls, in the closet, in the halls. It comes awake and I can't control it. Hiding under my bed, in my body, in my head. Why won't someone come and save me from this? Make it end. I feel it deep within. It's just beneath the skin. I must confess that I feel like a monster. I hate what I've become. The nightmare's just begun. I must confess that I feel like a monster. And what the, um, the author of that song is talking about is this dark part within our nature that has not yet surrendered to Christ and how it's always sitting there wanting to, to express itself in an evil way. That's why in your bulletins this morning I put that one cartoon of the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other and say the struggle is very real. That's how most of us live each day. And as strange as it sounds, this song actually started me on a journey to confront some of the dark sides in my spirit. And God used it to hold a mirror up to me, and I didn't necessarily like everything that I saw looking back. I saw selfishness and pride and ego and a need for recognition and other people's praise and admir admiration. And, you know, these are just a few things I saw that needed Jesus' healing touch. Another step on this journey, and I think this is a journey that we all go through for our entire lives, but we're just confronting it in a, a very um, direct way this morning. I was given a book that was called Overcoming the Dark Side of Leadership. And it's a very interesting book. The, in it, the author states that most leaders lead, that they unconsciously lead from their dark side. That this dark side that is within them 
is where is what actually makes them want to exert leadership over the top of other people. For pastors, which is who this book is mostly directed toward, it's dealing with the insecurities that most pastors feel like, and they try to put a, um, a panacea or a solve or a, a cure on that by being recognized and loved by other people by being a pastor. And I thought that was a very eye-opening book, and it exposed a lot of what was in my life, and it also helped me realize what happened in a lot of failed spiritual leaders I had seen before and in my, in my eventual going, being saved and going to Bible school and eventually becoming a pastor, I saw what had happened to them and why it had happened. That's a little bit of background this morning to introduce you to Romans chapter 7. If I were to summarize it, I would say that what Paul is talking about here in chapter 7 is his version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Paul is teaching us that we all have a fallen nature that we have to contend with all the time. Now, most people suppress it. Most people historically in the church, we don't want to talk about our dark side. We don't want to talk about our struggles. We don't want to talk about our weakness. We put on a church face. We come to church. We smile. We say everything's going great. While inside, we are constantly struggling with things and constantly worried about people seeing our weaknesses, seeing our mistakes, seeing our our not-so-pleasant side. But it's always there. It's always there within each one of us. It's always waiting for a moment to come screaming out and cause destruction in our lives and in the lives of others. So we're going to look at that this morning, and we're going to see what the Bible says about it. Genevieve is going to read for us this morning in chapter 7 about what the Bible says about our dual nature. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over man only as long as he lives. For example, by law a married woman is, is, for example, by law a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who has raised was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. <laughs> Indeed, I would not have known what sin <clears throat> was except 
through the law, for I would not have known that coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. <clears throat> for apart from sin, law, sin is death. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through, through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do, I do not do, for, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, that is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Amen. Thank you, John. Yeah, some tongue twisters in there. Let's pray.
Father God, we're going through a very difficult chapter this morning in that we have to confront some things that are very sensitive, somewhat awkward, some things that we don't like to talk about, Father, and especially those of us, Father, who had sinful, very sinful lives prior to coming to surrender to you, and some people who are newer in the faith who still have a lot of struggles of, of things that are commandment-level sins even. So, so, Father, I just ask, Lord, that you just send your Holy Spirit this morning, that you touch our hearts and minds, that we're not condemning people, but we're trying to help them in seeing that you want to heal every single part of us, Lord. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there is a desire in your heart that we all be molded and formed and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ so that when we stand before this world, all people see is Jesus. Lord God, let that be our hearts this morning as we read your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. So Paul starts out with an example from marriage this morning. And I know that some people would say, well, that seems very one-sided what we are seeing right there. So I want to address that just before we get too far into the message this morning. Just to address the fact that he seems to be looking at women and not talking a lot about men. Because it's easy for us to misunderstand what Paul is trying to teach here. And I note, I want you to remember that Paul is primarily speaking to Jewish people or at least Christian Greeks who probably know a lot about the law. And when I say that they know a lot about the law or that they're steeped in the law, for a Jewish person, the law was their entire world. It, it, it wandered its way into their conversations. Every, they would, all of their common sayings were, um, were taken from the Torah. Um, when we say that a leopard can't change its spots, meaning that a person can't change, they would take that from the Torah, not that it says that in the Torah, but they would take that kind of a statement and saying, um, like David couldn't change, therefore, you know, that person's not going to change. They would always focus everything in their lives around that law. And within these laws, there appear to be some laws and edicts that appear to be very kind of sexist or misogynist in our in our eyes in this year 2020 looking backward at what they were doing in the first century that men seem to get a different set of rules than women and i want to point out that in the first century the idea that women had any rights or anything to say was revolutionary christianity was the first and really only major world religion that elect that elevated women to the equal of men in fact, Jesus himself made it a point to elevate women and elevate them even to positions of um, being apostles and evangelists and pastors in his church. The woman who was probably Jesus' first convert, who was that? Any guesses? Mary Magdalene. That's not fair because you're reading it off the thing. <laughs> Who, who did he use as an evangelist of the Samaritans? Woman at the well, right? And not only was she a woman, but she was a woman who had a horrible 
life, a horrible reputation in her community, and yet Jesus appointed her to be an evangelist. Would you say that the woman at the well had a little bit of a dark side in her? Mary Magdalene had a little bit of a dark side. He had to drive seven demons out of her. And she was probably living as a, as a prostitute at the time. Who did he appear to after his resurrection, making her the first evangelist in Christian history? Again, Mary Magdalene. So I, don't, I, I just put that a little bit into perspective in verses 1 to 3, that you're not focusing on the women that Paul seems to be picking on women. Point, Paul is just using this as an illustration to help us understand where we begin before we come to Christ. And before anyone comes to Christ, we live in a spiritually dead state. When Adam and Eve sinned, they passed this infection of sin onto the rest of us. And we all inherit this, this disease, if you will, and it became part of our nature. And since the wages of sin is death, we all were born spiritually death. And this is the source of the dark side that each one of us has. Our dark side gets its power from sin and rebellion. It seeks to govern our thoughts. It seems to govern our emotion and control our actions throughout our entire life. And I would say the vast majority of the people I have ever met, who especially those who don't come to Christ, exist there. And some of these people might even be what we would consider to be good people. They have a nice house, they pay their taxes, they mow and trim their lawn, they do nice things for people, maybe they're on the Lions Club or, or something like that, and they seem to be just a fine, outstanding member of society. But really, why they do all these things is to support themselves, support their own reputation, support others' view of themselves. It has nothing to do with actually being humble, but has everything to do with self-promotion. So that's everyone's starting point, living in Adam's sin, and it causes us to be spiritually dead. Verses 4 through 6 make that plain, particularly verse 5, when it says, For, we are, for when we are controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death, and the wages of sin is death. And you look at that and you say, well, wait a second. Did Paul just say that the law of God causes sin? Well, yes. Let me explain, though. Let me explain what Paul is saying here. I saw a social media meme this week about wearing face masks. Some of us here in the church are wearing face masks to protect ourselves and others from the coronavirus. And the, the meme on social media was a picture of a mirror. And next to the mirror, there was a a poster that said, look, look here to see the face of a person who doesn't care about anyone else but themselves so they don't wear a mask. And I thought that was a really blatant attempt at internet bullying and shaming and just false. But, um, but it's also a great example of what the law is meant to do for us. The law really has two functions for us. Number one, it reveals the character of God. It shows his perfection. It shows his holiness. It shows his, his absolute who he is, what he is, why he does what he does. That is what the law is there for, to show us the moral perfection of the God we worship. The second function 
of God's law is to show us how we fall short of that perfection. You see, the law is meant as a mirror to hold up to us. And when we see this mirror, if our image isn't fully fitted within that image of Jesus Christ, we know that we have sinned somehow. We know that we have, have been imperfect in some way that we need to repent of and we need God's help to, be, to reach inside us and pull whatever that is out by the root so that we can become the image of God ourselves. That's the law's function for us. And Paul explains that a little bit more in verse 7 when he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not know, have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not know what coveting was unless was if the law had not said, Do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every time of covetous desire. Let me illustrate this a little bit. Maybe this is in my own life, but I know it's not because I've been in men's groups where people have told me this. How many people hear a sermon in the church and it seems within 24 hours you're placed in a situation that points right back to that sermon? Maybe the pastor preaches on gossip one Sunday and you leave the church and say, okay, I'm not going to gossip. Then you walk in the door on Monday morning to wherever you work and there's a bunch of people standing around saying, hey, you hear that Tim's having an affair on Sheila? Did you hear about that? Did you, do you know about that? Did you see them the other day at the park? They were just all rubbing up on each other and, and doing all this kind of stuff. And you immediately get drawn into that and start talking and gossiping. And then all of a sudden, when you start the sin, then the devil turns around and stabs you with it and says, oh, well, some Christian you are, you can't even go 24 hours. And that's, that's the kind of, of cyclical thing that the enemy tries to do to bring us um, away from God. Maybe the pastor said something about sexual sin, and later that day or night you're flipping through the channels at home, or you're sitting in front of your computer or with your phone, and something a thought comes up about searching for something that you know you wouldn't want us to put up on the screen, and all of a sudden you're falling into that again. Have you ever asked yourself, why does this seem to happen? Well, Paul gives us the explanation. In verse 10, he said, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which was good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through that which was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. At the beginning of the message, I talked a little bit about that, that monster that seems to want to live within each one of us. Paul gives a name to that monster. It's sin. It's that sinful nature. And one of the things I love about the Bible, and I love about the Holy Spirit, and I love especially about the Apostle Paul, is he was always very, very honest with us about his own struggles with sin, about some of his own doubts, some of his own unbelief. 
And think about this. Aside from Jesus himself, no one can argue that Paul had the greatest impact of anyone who has ever lived on the church. Most of the New Testament was written by Paul. He formed our theology. He showed us what true life has looked like. For us Pentecostals especially, he showed us the importance of the Holy Spirit's presence and power in our lives. Paul's writings were so influential that Peter, who Jesus called the rock of the church, referred to Paul's writings as scripture. He's a spiritual giant. You would expect Paul to be a thousand percent holy and righteous all the time, not having any spiritual wavering at all. Like he had just a straight line right to God all the time. But this is how Paul described himself in his struggles with his inner dark side. Verse 14, when he said, I know, or we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but I hate what I do. And if I no longer, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living within me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. For if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the, sinful, but the sin living in me that does it. A few verses later, in verse 24, he cries out, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? A few weeks ago, we read Romans chapter 3, where Paul said, There is no one righteous, no, not one. If anyone had the claim to righteousness, it would have been Paul. And he includes himself in that. And as he's writing these words, I can almost envision him crying as he wrote them. Who will save me from this monster lurking within the deepest, darkest parts of my spirit and my soul? Who will save me from this body of death? Who can stop this merry-go-round of sin, repentance, sin, repentance, and then still wanting to sin. That's why Jesus gave us the answer. You need to be born again. That's how you get off the performance merry-go-round. And you experience the true life of grace that Jesus gives those who earnestly seek him. That's why the most important verses in the Bible in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now verse 17 means everything to us this morning. For God did not send his son 
into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's how you deal with your dark side. The devil wants to take that, that unregenerate side of you and use it to condemn you, use it to keep you under its thumb, use you to create this hopelessness in your heart that you can never be good enough for God's grace. But God had sent His Son into the world to save us, not condemn us. The Christian life is to be one of freedom in Christ, not shackled under the chains of guilt and condemnation. So let me close this morning in giving you three quick steps in how to deal with your dark side. Number one, just be honest about it. Be honest about it. We all have one, even me. If you don't believe me, ask Tammy. She'll tell you. I can have a dark side sometimes. <laughs> Tammy's walking forward to grab the microphone. <laughs> Just deal with it. You know, this, is, this church really should be a hospital for the sick. It shouldn't be a mausoleum for those who think they're made perfect, right? We're a hospital for the sick. We all fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. Number two, resist the impulse to hide from it. What I mean by that is we get really, really, really good at covering up the sin. Instead, drag it into the light. Your darkness can only thrive around other darkness. If you drag it into the light, the light of Jesus will destroy it. So I encourage you, drag it kicking and screaming out into the light so that Jesus can destroy it and continue to destroy it. Moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, just say, I know I have a weakness with this. Maybe it's gossip. We were talking about gossip earlier. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe when you're walking toward a crowd and you see them gossiping, you just turn to the side and keep walking. Because you know if you join in with them, you know you're going to jump right back in. Avoid it altogether. Avoid the situations that are going to cause this. If it's something like watching something that, that isn't pleasing to God, don't put yourself in a situation where you're alone with technology. Or put blocks on your stuff. It's, it's, it's all protective. Drag this stuff out into the light and just confess it, not only to God, but to somebody else you can trust that will help hold you accountable. And the third thing is, surrender to Jesus in everything. Do not allow darkness to take root at all. The temptation as a Christian is saying, well, you know, so-and-so can deal with this, and they seem to be doing okay, and they go to a church, why can't I? Surrender to Jesus in everything. Because the devil will take the grain of sand that you allow him to have and turn it into an island that engulfs your whole being. Don't give the devil a foothold. Amen? Let's all stand.
Father God, I know that when we come to church, we want to talk about the good things. We want to talk about the glory that, and the grace that is found in you. We want to talk about forgiveness. We want to talk about the eventual time we'll have in heaven, Father. And sometimes we also have to talk about reality. And the reality is that we still all have a sinful nature that lurks inside of us, a sinful nature that, that wants to grab us, that wants to bring us down, that wants to make us again slaves of sin. So I ask, Father, that you just take this message this morning, you take these scriptures and you just bury them and burn them into our heart. Use it to ignite a passion for living right before you and help us to just internalize them and learn to live in victory through the truth we find in your word. And Father, finally, I just ask us, Lord, that we as a church family would be willing to be open and honest with one another, that if one person is struggling, they would feel comfortable with talking to someone about it so we can hold each other all mutually accountable, Father, so that your work and your salvation can be worked out in everyone here in fear and trembling, Lord. Father God, I thank you I thank you, Lord, even for the hard messages, because sometimes it's the hard lessons that we learn the best.